Bloody hell. What's wrong? Oh, Hayden again. It's the start of a new year, and despite all my hopes and prayers, things don't seem to be any different. Climate change, still an existential threat. COVID and respiratory illnesses running rampant. It's cold and dark outside. It's also depressing. Well, uh, were you expecting something different? Well, you know, everybody puts so much effort into celebrating the start of a new year like it's some sort of new beginning. You'd think something would change. Well, okay. Now that you mention it, I have a suggestion that something we could change. The Free Press did some polling on our first seven episodes of the podcast. Well, well we, we actually did some polling? Yep. And there was some really interesting results. So first off, people really love my name, Negon. It really rolls off the tongue. It's enjoyable. People really thought, like, my name was the bomb. And uh, what about the Lone Ranger? Not so good. Uh, people still think it's racist, even though the Lone Ranger has not been canceled by anyone. It tends to rub people the wrong way. So in order to satisfy your need for change and, and to meet the expectations of our audience, I've got an idea. I say the new name of the podcast should be The Negon Show with special guests. Okay, so let me get this straight. I've gone from The Lone Ranger joint top billing to just special guests. Yep. I know it's not probably the change you're looking for, but it's change. I think it'll help the podcast. Oh, come on, man. Take one for the team. It's all for the greater good. And remember, you know, there's no I in podcast. Oh, man. We're only a few days in and 2023 already sucks. The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents... In partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Negan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Negan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. Welcome everybody to the first uh, episode of 2023 of the apparently Negan show. Happy New uh, Year! <laughs> Yeah, some of us being happier than others. Thanks a lot, Negan Show. It's just like the free press too to go out and do uh, like polling and not tell me. You know that is so that is so free press helping me helping me keep it real for thirty seven years. Let us yeah. stop being so busy and just read the sked in the morning. That's what you got to yeah, do. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, so uh, did did you actually get a break? I mean, I know we we kind of talked about doing a, an episode between Christmas and New Year's, and then. We lost our will to pod. We, well, I think we just ran out of time and then uh, the holidays happened. And then, of course, the offices is a, of our producer uh, shut down for the holidays. Understandably so. They're a wonderful organization that depends a lot on volunteers. And so uh, we decided to take a week off. And, and here we are in 2023. It's a new start. Everybody's happy and nothing is wrong in the world. <laughs> you know it is like i i wrote my newsletter this week uh, kind of about this but new year's pisses me off because um well okay so and, and i can see parenthetically i'm looking at you right now and parenthetically you're thinking okay what doesn't piss dan off so but this new year's really pisses me off because people treat it like it's some sort of a watershed moment like you know that Oh my God, thank God 2022 is over and we can start a new year. Like I, I've never understood the sentiment attached to new year. It's, it's like an, it's like a fresh opportunity. It's like a reset button. Uh, I started a new cleanse. There you go. Okay. Well, that's, we get, we're going to get all the scatological information, background information out right away. Cleanse is good. Uh, yeah. I mean, I guess like, I guess if you use it as a trigger. Uh, but I think, you know, the, the, the point that I made in, in my newsletter is that like, I prefer to kind of, you know, accumulate lists of things that I really need to do. And then like, as soon as there's enough things on the list then I attack the list, you know, like chores, personal, first yeah. Week January. yeah. And then I, you know, then I feel like I've, you know, I'm, I'm making progress in my life. Even for you, if it's not like really. for everyone else, it's like. Brand new opportunity for Dan. It's like Thursday. 
It's Thursday. That's right. But that is so utterly typical for me. Just ask anybody who lives with me uh, about my my rather fatalistic view. Actually, it, that's not true. I, I'm actually constantly optimistic about things. I, you know, we did have a little holiday gathering over at your house. Uh, we had our producer, Adam, over. And uh, you seemed pretty jovial. I'm not going to lie. You, uh, you seemed like you were happy. Uh, you seem like you were in your glory, making us everyone dinner. And then, of course, we all kind of hung around and told stories at the end of dinner. I mean, you were happy. The the one thing I will tell you is at the end of the year, I certainly feel a cumulative burden, like a weight from the work of the year. Like I, I usually tell people that I work like a dog. All year long, I don't take all of my vacation. So then I, I have to take it all at the end of the year or the very beginning of, of the next year. And, uh, to, you know, so what I do is work like a dog and then I have a really well-timed nervous breakdown around the holidays. And uh, and then I, that's my cleanse is, is I kind of like, you know, sink to my depth. And Sounds painful. Um, it's my birthday. That's why I always remember oh. the years. And so my birthday is only in a couple days from now. Pretty exciting. And I think it's a chance of, for an opportunity. So it's a chance to talk about the past year, but then also move towards the new year, which we're going to do today. We are going to do today and we're going to kind of mix things up because it's the beginning of the year and we have so much we want to talk about from the last year and so much we want to talk about about the, you know, that is connected to the year that's about to be. So we've decided to switch things up and we've asked two other free press journalists to join us for a wide ranging discussion of uh, the events of 2022 and what we're looking for in 2023. Jen Zarati and Katrina Clark, I'm going to do to you what people do to me whenever I go to speak somewhere, which is they, they feel necessary to read directly from my free press biography. So uh, just to introduce uh, uh, who you are. So Jen Zarati is a Winnipeg Free Press columnist who has an opinion on just about anything. And that will really become patently clear. And Jen uses her thoughtful writing and observational wit to comment on the local issues of the day, as well as larger trends in technology, media, pop culture, health, human rights, and feminism. And uh, I couldn't agree more. Uh, with that that paragraph, I think it's uh, it, as an inside joke. I think like we all wrote our own bios, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Writing, okay. Writing yeah. in the third person is always always a vibe, but the, the, that's right. So <laughs> there, there's your first insider insider <laughs> vibe. So Jen, thanks for for joining us. Thanks for having me. And Katrina is uh, newer to the free press. She joined us in 2022. Uh, she is a born Winnipegger who was raised in Southern Ontario. Where in Southern Ontario? I was raised in Barrie, Ontario, just outside oh. Toronto. I used to play uh, hockey and basketball in Barrie. She believes Manitoba instilled grit and resiliency in her uh, from day one by living the first months of her life in a frigid prairie winter, which you clearly, we're going to get to this in a minute, you don't really have any memory of that, but you're you're getting reacquainted in the worst possible way now, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's been a while since I've been here for a Manitoba winter. Okay. As a journalist, she's worked in Toronto and Fredericton, Hamilton. Uh, she joined the Free Press last year, and her speciality is uh, investigative work. Uh, and, and she's done a lot of great stories since she's joined the paper, and she's going to discuss a few of them today. So this is like, this is our first like multiple person panel. So we decided that we would talk about the stories that were important for us in 2022 and where we think they're, they're sort of going to go. But Nagan and I definitely decided that, uh, Katrina, we wanted to get your reflections on winter uh, because, uh, you know, I mean, you have lived in cities that have winter, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, Barrie is in the snow belt. Like we definitely got a lot of snow there. And I, I feel like Winnipeg hasn't really had a classic Winnipeg winter yet. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, it's not felt too bad. And maybe I've just been expecting it to be worse, but um, yeah, I haven't encountered too much of what I've been unprepared for yet. The true Winnipeg winter doesn't happen until everyone talks about how uh, this winter is the worst winter ever. And then and then it's a true Winnipeg winter. So that hasn't quite happened yet, although we have had the minus 
40, 50 degree temperatures for a brief moment there. But once you start hearing about people saying this is the worst Winnipeg winter ever, then it's a true Winnipeg winter. I've lived here for all of my 37 years. And there are winters that stand out as being like particularly like banger Winnipeg winters. So mm-hmm. I would say last year, actually, with all the snow, there was snow drifts. And I couldn't figure out why things looked so different and weird to me. And it's like, oh, I haven't seen snow drifts like this along the road since I was a kid. And we used to get like notes in our backpack being like, don't climb on them and then roll into the <laughs> because we're in kids. But like, I haven't seen that in a really long time. And then there was like the Mars winter. I'm sure you guys remember like 2013, where it was like, it's colder than Mars in Winnipeg. So like, you know, there's some that stand out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think Katrina, the, the mistake that you may have made when you were living elsewhere, living away, may have been talking to former Winnipeggers about winter. Because I found, like, I'm I'm from Southern Ontario as well. I've lived here a very long time. and uh, But I did go back and, you know, I worked in Ottawa for the free press. And, you know, anytime you hooked up with, like, there used to be a group of Manitoba expats that got together once a month for drinks on Spark Street. I would go there and they would all sit around and talk about uh, what W.O. Mitchell once called uh, Manitobans natural disaster uh at you know uh vanity addicts right uh you know i don't want to hear about the snowstorms in quebec or fredericton when you know we have the worst we have the worst bugs we have the and that and then you get here and you realize there's winter everywhere in the country you know it's just a little bit different but the, you know well i you know i'm glad that we can uh reminisce about uh and talk about do the most Winnipeg thing ever, which is talk about how we have the hardest winter and, and so on. But uh, especially with our visitor from Toronto, Dan, um, but <laughs> uh, you know, like originally I wanted this to be a 90 minute conversation on inflation. Uh, but uh, luckily Dan <laughs> saved you and you all submitted uh, your own lists of the stories of 2022 uh, and so who would like to go first? Who would like to say, what is the story that was the most pivotal story for you, the one that you covered as a journalist uh, in 2022? Who'd like to go first? Walrus. Walrus. Okay. No, I feel sorry. like I'm in school. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm having, a, I'm having a major flashback for uh, listeners who don't know. Nigan used to be one of my teachers in high school. Um, so being <laughs> called upon right now, I was ringing me real like, I'll answer Mr. Sinclair vibes. So <laughs> he's 11. so old. I didn't realize how old he is. Yeah. Oh, that I'll let you have that shot. Dan. Thanks. Yeah, I will. I graduated from high school redacted years ago. So we redacted. Figured, figured out. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll start by talking about a story that really, um, captured my imagination in a positive way and then in a super negative way. And that was of course Freya the walrus. So for those who might not be familiar with the story, there was this beautiful Norwegian walrus that had kind of made it to very populated fjords in Norway during the summer. So a place where she's not normally supposed to be. And she was literally like sinking people's pleasure crafts with her heft and like stunning <laughs> on people's boats and became kind of a viral sensation because, you know, there's this like massive unbothered queen just enjoying her life and having her hot girl summer, et cetera, et cetera, went super viral. And then Norwegian authorities mentioned to people, you know, look, you ha- it's she's a walrus. Like you have to keep your distance. You have to not bug her. She needs lots of rest. Like, girl, same. Like, I also would like to be left alone. (laughs) Um, And people did not do this. And then Freya was euthanized. And the morning that I saw that she had been killed, it was honestly so upsetting because it felt like it felt like you knew her like any other celebrity, right? It's like, oh, like this walrus, I've become very attached to. I've been following her exploits. And because people can't leave her alone and like people were throwing things at her they were trying to get selfies with her they were swimming like just you know and I wrote a column about this and just how Freya sort of on a macro level became a real avatar for why we can't have nice things because it's like you (laughs) especially love this creature and she has become something that you're a fan of and yet you will literally put her in danger by ignoring and people were told like this is Freya's fate so people knew that there was a high possibility that she would be killed and just continued Mm. Torment her anyway. So it was just one of those things where, like, man, like, and I think also, too, there's another, and I kind of addressed this in the column I wrote, too, about how 
you know, there is dangers becoming over familiar with anything, whether it's whether we're talking about celebrities or animals or whatever. And I think by, you know, giving her a name and talking about her hot girl summer, it really made her seem more like a beanie baby than like a large animal who could gore you to death should you get too close to her. So yeah, it was one of those stories where it just it started as like a fun viral. I'm following this because it's bringing me joy. And now it's just making me fully irate. I had this Simpson-esque moment where I imagined two aliens in a spaceship orbiting Earth, watching us euthanize a, uh, you know, a, a, a peaceful and yeah. majestic animal, uh, you know, uh, simply for the crime of venturing too close to us. And uh, it was a, it was, it was not a banner moment for uh, humanity uh, to do that. And when you connect it to so many of the other stories, uh, of the year, like it did, it was funny. And I, I, when you first suggested it, I thought, eh. but then I realized, no, this is, this is a parable for, yeah. uh, for our lives right now. Yeah. It's uh, I mean, you know, environmental destruction, people getting over familiar people, you know, take your pick. Like she represents so many things that are, that are wrong. And I mean, it didn't have to go that way. It's just, and I mean, you could even link it to, flooding of pandemic precautions, right? Yeah. People are told this is what the outcome will literally be. And yet, you know, touching closer to home. I mean, this is a story that's precisely about Manitoba because it's also about how we forget that our industrialization uh, is, you know, people complain about like, I'll give you a really bad example, but at the university of Manitoba, where my other job is, um, people complain about the geese and they go, oh, it's the invasion of the geese. And I have to remind people, no, we're the invaders. Uh, yeah. This is the traditional territory of the geese. And we should be do a territorial acknowledgement every time we give a class. It's, <laughs> we acknowledge the territory of the geese because <laughs> we are on their territory. And in Manitoba, I mean, we're really seeing a situation with bears where we yeah. have industrialized the areas so much around towns and and cities that the bears have no other choice than in their traditional territory their route to come into areas where there's humans and so uh yeah. this is a story that's very much about uh humans infringing on the territory and and frankly mm -hmm. colonizing others mm -hmm. and this is like it's, a, it's kind of a sidebar but i don't know if any of you saw the new yorker documentary nuisance bear they filmed it takes it's filmed in Churchill. It's great. It doesn't use any score. It doesn't use any narration. It's just telling a story through wildlife. And it's about a polar bear that becomes a nuisance bear um, near Churchill and needs to be relocated and kind of tells the story. But it's just amazing. And it's the same thing with the like how we anthropomorphize, right? So you watch this bear and he's trying to get into the garbage dump and he's like looking through the bars and then it cuts to the smaller animals that are inside because they can get through the bar and then it cuts back to the bear and you're like oh he's sad <laughs> like, get in there you know but it's just like you end up developing like really intense feelings for this bear and it's like well like why are you? i understand that you need to chase him away because he's an apex predator near a town but at the same time it's like I don't know. This is where he lives. Like we're in his backyard, you know, and you see that with black bears in cabin country too, where people yeah. are just not responsible. And then they're like, Oh my God. But yeah, they're hungry and they're there. Like that's what bears do. Based so, on the list that everybody provided, uh, I doubt we're going to get um, more optimistic or hopeful in the other stories that we're going to discuss. Although we may be able to pull back to just interesting and uh and uh in news later on but Katrina I, I am keen to kind of because you, you had highlighted a story that you recently did where you got to go back to one of your old haunts in Hamilton and you took a look at uh the entirely different attitude that uh Hamilton has towards safe consumption site uh, for those people with uh, substance abuse uh, problems mm -hmm. uh, and addictions and compared it to the um to Manitoba, which is bereft of of such facilities on what basically appears to be ideological grounds. I don't like I don't want to put too many words, but so like you you visited one of the facilities, you talked to some of the people whose lives had been saved by it. Tell me more about what you learned uh about uh, this issue just from visiting firsthand. Yeah. So I mean this was part of our downtown series that ran sort of at the end of December and looking at sort of big picture issues, 
um, challenges and successes with downtown. And so my focus was on supervised consumption sites and harm reduction and lack thereof with um, the supervised consumption sites in Winnipeg and in Manitoba. And one of the things that surprised me moving here was that there are no supervised consumption sites anywhere in the province. Um, and I had to actually keep like asking people to make sure that I wasn't wrong on that because I thought maybe I just was misreading something, but so there are no supervised consumption sites. And basically these in Ontario and in a lot of provinces, um, they're sites where people can bring their own drugs and they can consume drugs within spaces where they're being supervised. And usually there's like a healthcare um, professional there. There's um, people with lived experience of drug use. And so basically they can consume their own drugs that they bring in from outside without fear of being arrested. And they're supervised there usually for about like 20 minutes or so after they inject or um, snort or however they're consuming. And they're supervised to make sure they don't, um, that if they overdose, that they're revived. So there are things like naloxone and oxygen in these spaces. And so I went back to Hamilton, which is where I was working before. I was working at the Hamilton Spectator before coming here about eight months ago. Um, and uh, I had never been in the spaces in Hamilton, despite working there for about two years or so. So, I mean, people there were incredibly helpful with this project um, in terms of really inviting us into the space, really trusting us, like, you know, coming into a space where there are people who are vulnerable, who are concerned about their privacy. We were really careful, myself and um, freelance photographer, Carlos Osorios out of Hamilton. But yeah, so I mean, these people were, the people who run these sites are, were fantastic in letting us come in. Hamilton has one permanent, um, it, they call them consumption and treatment services. And that's sort of what the province of Ontario calls them. Um, one's permanent site. So we visited there. They have, um, you know, like going into this site, it's, you sort of feel like you're going into a, a medical clinic and mm. people who work in these spaces, they, they don't actually want it to look super clinical because they, they want it to be a comfortable space where people use, who use drugs. And sometimes those traditional um, you know, healthcare environments would have been spaces where they've had a bad experience in the past or been stigmatized. So anyways, but, um, but yeah, I mean, it's very clean. You walk in, there's a front desk. Um, there's, uh, you know, this area where it's just these different sections where they have um, different like harm reduction supplies, like clean needles and um, like alcohol swabs and sorts of things that, um, you know, make you make it safer to consume substances. So that was the one site I visited. The other site we visited was um, called a safer use drug space. So basically this is a space that was put in place through a federal exemption that was like part of an, because of the emergency toxic drug crisis in Hamilton, um, the YWCA there was able to just go to Health Canada and get this federal exemption. Um, so they have a space where um, it's women who, who uh, typically access their sort of shelter services can go in and consume drugs in the same way that they, they do in the other permanent space. And then Hamilton's also working to get a th third site, I suppose. Um, and this would be, I guess, their technically second permanent space um, in the East End as well. So anyways, yeah, it was uh, an eye-opening experience. Um, Manitoba is very opposed to having these sites. Uh, they say they've done, they say their decisions based on evidence and research. Um, everyone else that I speak with who's you know, an advocate for drug users and for um, harm reduction says that's incorrect and that these spaces do save lives. No one, there's been no recorded deaths of anyone ever dying of an overdose in a supervised consumption site anywhere in Canada ever. And we don't know the total number of deaths from drug overdose last year in Manitoba, but it's looking like it's going to be upwards of 
400. I've written so much about uh, drug use in the downtown uh, because I patrol it every week. And, uh, but, you know, I have also written about the safe cons consumption site in Thunder Bay uh, called the Kwai Kiwin Center. And uh, like, it's, it's absolutely baffling when people say, oh, there's no evidence that support safe consumption sites. The one in Thunder Bay uh, simply put, I mean, they've been documenting meticulously their success. And they, uh, in a 2019 report, said that this is just before the pandemic. Imagine what it's like now when there's exponential drug use, interaction with police, and rise in poverty as a result of the pandemic. But in 2019 in Thunder Bay, they saw a 37% reduction in hospital admissions, 54% reduction in ER use, and 42% less police contact. I mean, that yeah. is millions upon millions of dollars saved of taxpayers' dollars due to safe consumption sites. So when it, you know, the when the Manitoba Premier takes a safe consumption site report and then tosses it on the ground, which is what he did in the Manitoba Legislature, not the current one, but the last one, uh, yeah. it, it's absolutely baffling when they say there's no data. It's. I like this is something that I also wrote about back in I found a column I did in from 2018 and I did a pair of stories one of them was talking to two um fentanyl users um who were a couple um who we kept anonymous um I'll get back to them in a moment but I also interviewed people from Insight which of course is the pioneering um supervised consumption site in Vancouver uh this is from 2018 so this is a little bit old but since they opened in 2003 so between 2003 and 2018, they had more than 3 million injections at the facility and no deaths. So, and they had such interesting, like things that I didn't even think of. So for example, the language, right? A lot of people say safe consumption. No, it's safer or supervised and like ingesting illicit drugs is not going to be a safe activity. So you have to use also proper language around it because that also helps with buy-in from public. I think as soon as you start calling it safe, like it's like, well, it's not mm -hmm. safe. How can we make this? safer. So we're mitigating death, we're mitigating infection. Um, it's also thinking about harm reduction. Like people have a very narrow mind of like about what that is, but like socks are harm reduction, mittens are harm reduction. You're dressing for this weather, a coat is harm reduction. You know what I mean? So it's just having like the alcohol wipes and those things that prevent infection and transmission of other diseases. Because some of the nurses I talked to related to these stories, uh, hepatitis C, for example, is wild among intravenous drug users because there isn't those kinds of interventions. And then the two people that um, the fentanyl users who I talked to, um, they have both since died. So that is since 2018, where I talked to them, the woman was first and then followed by her partner. I, I wrote recently about the political equation uh, behind this. And, um, you know, because every time you and Katrina, you, you'll know this uh, storyline from painful personal experience. But when you confront the uh, provincial government about its opposition to safe consumption, they say two things. Number one is they say, you know, we, we prefer an evidence-based approach, suggesting that somehow there's evidence that, you know, uh, characterizes safer consumption sites as a negative. Uh, then they want to talk about recovery. So they, they you know, that uh, they want to invest robustly and aggressively in programs to contribute recovery. And, you know, it's just too easy. Like it's, it's so, such low hanging fruit when you want to uh, criticize this provincial government. It is a progressive, well, progressive conservative. I'm getting tired of the oxymoron there with this government, but it's, it's a right of center government. Um, so uh, drug addiction, substance abuse, we can solve that by giving people more options for recovery. Certainly support and recovery is important, but like you can stop the spread of HIV through abstinence. Um, like it, it completely sort of ignores the, the, um, uh, the real politic, the reality of life on the streets. And uh, yeah, like uh, in the end, th this is a government that does not believe they should be encouraging anybody to take drugs. And I think that the other thing to mention too is, I mean, there's looking at evidence um, or I don't know, looking at reports and cherry picking things, but there's also placing value on who 
you whose um whose evidence and whose anecdotes you value and so speaking with you know drug users i spoke with two people who use the consumption treatment service space in hamilton regularly and first of all they were shocked as was everyone i spoke with um throughout my research that manitoba just doesn't have any of these spaces because you know they were saying that it's uh one of the individuals i spoke with randy um, you know, he was saying that he, if he was in Manitoba, he would be dead because this space has saved his life numerous times. And so, I mean, if you can't hear someone say something like that and not be moved by that and not try and explore that a little bit more, um, I don't know. I just think that, uh, that the, the, there are some more questions to be asked and some more issues to be explored in Manitoba. And I hope that, um, that this issue stays on the public's radar. I want to pivot a little bit through uh, what you're saying about Manitoba. You know, I mean, we're, we're in such an interesting space uh, in Manitoba at the moment because we have what appears to be a transition from a right of center government to whatever the NDP is, uh, which I'm never quite sure they're left really uh, in Manitoba, uh, more center center for the NDP here in Manitoba. But, you know, because Heather Stephenson, one of the lowest rated pop uh, in terms of popularity premiers in the country, uh, her numbers are flirting with, you know, anywhere between 15 to 20 percent, depending on which week we're talking about. But she looks as though this uh, provincial election October is is going to be a serious problem for her uh, that the NDP may come back into. So we may be in a weird uh, uh, experience here in Manitoba that is different than the rest of the country. And so my top story from 2022 is what I see as the uh, the chameleonness, the transition or the, the comeback in, in many sectors of right of center politicians. And uh, kind of the, the linchpin of this is, I think, one of the greatest comebacks in Canadian political history, good, bad, great, ugly, whatever you think about him, the greatest political comeback in, in history, I think, is Doug Ford in Ontario, going from below 20% support during the pandemic, widely seen as, as a disaster, and mm -hmm. coming to now winning resoundly uh, the election in Ontario, whether you say it's because there was no opposition or whether you say it's because he was able to turn to his more populist issues, regardless, uh, Doug Ford is stronger than ever in Ontario. Um, and the, you know, Danielle Smith in Alberta, uh, proposing crazy ideas, absolutely insane ideas like the Sovereignty Act, but still coming to power in Alberta um, and while she may or may not be facing a similar situation to Heather Stephenson having to face the electorate fairly soon, uh, we'll come to see. And then, of course, the rise of Pierre Polyev, who uh, at the federal level is, you know, widely known as a convoy, freedom convoy supporter. We're going to see perhaps in about a month's time here in Winnipeg, a reunion of sorts of the convoy. We get a front row ticket to seeing the rise of the of the right wing, of course, you know, Pierre Polyev is uh, flirted with the right wing, always talks about uh, the right as though it's uh, the truth movement, very similar to Trump and so on. And so this rise in right wing uh, populism throughout the country um, really made a comeback this year where people thought it might have ebbed a little bit during the pandemic. And I think in Manitoba, we might still be in that phase, uh, particularly amongst the electorate. But you know, in the country, the right is very much stronger than ever. And that's really what my story is from 2022. Yeah, I think the there is uh, embedded in every election, by-election, leadership race. I mean, anytime politicians get together to, to fight over something, uh, there's this idea, there's a continuing belief that there is a giant silent majority of uh, you know far right wing slash libertarian uh, voters that's just waiting to unleash its revenge on the electorate, and um, you know like the uh, I you know it would be remiss as a political columnist not to like not to recognize that if it was actually happening. Although I don't really like I I don't see uh, a lot of evidence that you know, that this actually exists, 
even though the narrative is being driven very strongly. I mean, there was a, a report out of a U.S.-based think tank uh, that was just publicized today, uh, the Eurasia Group, and basically it, it believes that um, the rise of far-right uh, radicalism in Canada is now a a clear and present danger to our political system and has the potential to do what it, it has done uh, to the United States, where um, it, it's not just the paralyzing of the American political system, it's the, the possible destruction of, of the grand old party, the Republican Party, which appears to be imploding in on itself. I, I don't know about you guys. I don't like I think it's a real thing. I think I think anybody running for office has to contend with it. I don't see any evidence, though, that there are enough people who feel this way in Canada to actually determine an election. I think I, I don't know, like because in some ways there there could be this like vocal minority, but is there also like a large group of people who are, you know, more quietly having these views, holding these views? who could be swayed or, you know, I, I don't know. I, I I don't have a whole lot of insight into that. I just, I just, yeah. I mean, I think we look to what happened in the States in, even with, you know, the election of Trump. And I think as journalists, we're all cautious of um, not wanting to get something, not wanting to miss a whole segment of population who feels a certain way and then be surprised when an election, yeah. you know, comes around like see white women and Trump, right? Like it's just like a whole demographic that people didn't see coming and probably should have, you know? And then it's also like, consider I also am not, I'm just going to go for it here, but there's also like the empathy Venn diagram too. Like how organized are the vocal minority and how organized are the quiet conscientious objectors, whatever, you know, like is who is going to be organized, mobilized, into voting, you know, like that is always fascinating to me, um, as always, you know, who votes, who doesn't. The power of selfishness uh, cannot be <laughs> underestimated. And, and I think that the, in so many ways, the the right, it really does a very good job in this regard uh, by appealing to people's sense of gas prices, uh, price of milk. I mean, what is what is Pierre Polyev's most powerful speech? It's the, uh, the loaf of cost of a loaf of bread, as if anybody really thinks about that, uh, as if this is some sort of barometer. Um, and his criticism of inflation really just boils down to criticizing uh, loaves of breads and passport offices, you know, people's uh, appeal to go to southern warmer climates, or, you know, what is the price of their, um, how much are they going to pay for this week for this particular commodity? Uh, it the, the power of selfishness really has been cornered, the, they've cornered the market on the right, when it comes to that, or telling people a fantasy that doesn't exist. Uh, and that particularly comes to don't worry about your neighbor, you just have to worry about yourself. And, and that that is really uh, the rise that I think explains a lot of the right. And it's also somewhat alarming, because I think it ties to what Katrina was talking about with safe consumption sites. Uh, a safer consumption sites because, oh, don't worry about those people downtown. They have nothing to do with you. Uh, and we definitely don't want them to do drugs. Well, they're doing drugs because of the things that you're doing. Um, and there is a, uh, a, there's a real disconnect, I think, from people thinking about their neighbor. Big time. And I think we saw that. Um, and obviously another very big story to my mind this year was the rollback of Roe v. Wade. And something mm -hmm. that I wrote about was this co-opting of pro-choice language among anti-vaxxers mm. and how what makes it different for me is that when you're arguing for pro-choice from a reproductive rights point of view, you're arguing for the community good. You're arguing for everybody's right to access this fundamental form of healthcare versus anti-vaxxers. You are arguing for the individual. You are thinking about yourself and your maybe your family, but yourself alone. And that is why that co-opting of language really frustrated me because it's like, and I kind of wrote, you know, snarkily in a column, like, oh, it's so nice to see that so many of you are so full-throatedly pro-choice now. Like, that's awesome. Like, are you going to be like funding, you know, the access to abortion? Didn't think so because it's just, it's not thinking about that community level. It's thinking about the individual. Yeah. I think going forward, um, you know, there's going to be, I think, 
even if there isn't a federal election this year, there could very well be some seismic things that happen in federal politics. There's a poll out this morning that says more than half of Canadians would like the Liberal Party to find a different leader. And um, there's there's no doubt that uh, Justin Trudeau is about to, to experience his Greg Selinger moment, his Brian Pallister moment, his Jason Kenney moment. Like, when do you, as a leader, do you stop being a net benefit to your party? When do you start becoming a liability? So that, that'll that be a big thing. And, you know, on the conservative side, Pierre Paul there, like, it, it's it, it's fascinating to me, the debate, because, okay, so the Tories, uh, the federal Tories got killed in a by-election in Mississauga, like, just absolutely wiped out. And um, so the debate, particularly among the more right side of the of the equation media, has been pretty hilarious. The, the headline for an opinion writer in the uh, National Post was um, conservatives needed more Polyev and not less to win by-election. Eh, you know, I'm not like I think that right now he is the brand of the party. Like he is such a he's a bold character boarding on caricature um and uh you know the oh the the candidate they chose was the wrong guy he ran on the wrong issues listen when there's a single by election in the most populous province in the country at a time when uh the federal parties are running so closely neck and neck together th- this is absolutely a, it's a litmus test for leadership and and he failed in Mississauga which is hardly you know i would say the the most liberal part of of the gta area like it's an area where the the federal conservatives should do well um so yeah i don't i I mean this is also hopeful i don't see this large you know minority rising up and you know and smiting the more established parties i mean the daniel smith election i think will be a good uh it'll be good evidence to show of, of whether there is that um because I mean, she proposes this sovereignty act, uh, says uh, we're basically going to float federal law. We're going to ignore it uh, so that Alberta can be the uh, the the freedom idyllic utopia that it's always meant to be. Uh, and, and and you know, it, Albertans are not buying into that vision. And we all know that it's not a matter of how right. Uh, or whether they will vote right, there's how how far right, you know, and how far right does the NDP have to go uh, to be able to get government in that place? And, and so will she be able to ride to uh, the win of Alberta in the same way that she rode to the win of uh, the United Conservative Party in Alberta? That's I think that's really the question of, and, you know, is there that majority that will come out and support uh, a rather drastic, uh, some might call crazy, uh, vision for the province itself. Um, we're uh, get, starting to run out of time here, so we want to get to uh, uh, Dan. Your story, I think. Uh, what was your story for top story for 2022? I do want to very briefly bring up uh, the story, uh, the never-ending story, as I like to call it, uh, that was less reported in 2022 than it has been in the past, and that's COVID. So uh, story and a commentary by yours truly this week will point out that more people in Manitoba died from COVID in 2022 than in either of the previous two years in which the pandemic was was clearly the overarching issue that we all faced. Part of me wants to think that biologically speaking, we're evolving into a new era where we can somehow resist or survive viral threats. Um, You know, a lot more of me is, uh, like, I spend way too much time talking with epidemiologists, and quite frankly, they scare the crap out of me. Uh, But, you know, it's part of the job. And, you know, and they have no idea what's going to happen. So either the next iteration of one of these viruses is the one that is completely and utterly, like, impossible to treat with vaccines, or else it's, you know, more inert and easily treated. Um, so I, I am concerned. I've got a little bit of optimism in the background that we're, you know, <laughs> we're going to get to a better place. But yeah, I don't know. It's uh, I, I'm worried that we don't care anymore. And that's why in a year where we had nearly a thousand deaths from COVID, we didn't report very much on it. 
I also think that with the way climate is changing, there won't be a hundred years between pandemics anymore. So I think people need to start wrapping their minds around that as well, that as the climate changes and as, you know, viruses that we in North America don't have to deal with are going to start dealing with, um, you know, your malarias, et cetera, like, mm. you know, we're talking years down the line, but it's not, it's not a distant, hazy future that you can't imagine anymore. Like it needs no. to be sort of a little bit more front burner for people to recognize that, you know, this is this is something that is also hooked into other things, including a changing climate. So let's turn our mind, like we did talk about the stories of 2022. There was a little bit of uh, projecting forward in 2023, but it, like what other uh, stories made a big impression on you or stories that you think are going to carry on to 2023. Uh, and they don't have, I think for the the benefit of our listeners, they don't all have to be existential threats. <laughs> we, could, we do write about things that are not existential threats, don't we, Jen? Yeah. We do. Um, I particularly do. <laughs> so <laughs> I work in the arts and life department. So I uh, deal with matters of arts and life. Um, and I think arts are life in a lot of ways. And a story that I did, which it was one of those stories that I think I was expecting to be more heavy and then it ended up being quite hopeful. But around last winter, we were looking at, so, you know, Black Lives Matter movement happened. And I think a lot of arts organizations started looking at matters of representation in a more concrete, real way. Whose plays do we see? Whose voices do we see more often? Who makes up our company dancers, et cetera. So, um, Editor Scott Gibbons and I had an idea to look at kind of the four major players in Winnipeg. So we looked at uh, Royal Manitoba Theatre Centre, Royal Winnipeg Ballet. Telling, like These are institutions with royal in the title. Like they are like, in, like you know, dealing with Eurocentric arts, right? Um, we also looked at the Winnipeg Art Gallery and we looked at the Winnipeg Symphony Orchestra. And it was, we sort of wanted to take a dual track look. So we wanted to look at sort of who the pioneers were and who were the firsts and if there's been any, and then what are some ways forward? And it was really interesting. Like there was not a black principal uh, artist in the WSO, for example, until the early 2000s. There hasn't been a black company dancer at the RWB since the 70s. So like really looking into these and, and finding these people and talking to them about it, which was super fascinating as well. Um, Tony Williams, for example, a uh, pr former principal dancer at RWB, he has his own dance studio. Uh, I think he, I can't remember offhand where he's based, I think in Boston, but he has his own uh, dance studio and company. And every year they do an urban nutcracker that has become like the thing to see. So there are sort of these things that are very encouraging small steps forward. So talking to, you know, students at the RWB school, um, you know, you have two Black ballet students. One of them was the first Black Clara we've had since 2007 this year. Um, the RWB is also doing something really cool this year, working with the Cultural, Com Com Cultural Competency Equity coalition, which is started by a woman named Teresa Howard. She's based in New York. She's awesome. Um, but she basically works with ballet companies on this about how to be more inclusive, how to attract, you know, more black students, how to improve diversity, um, from the student level, because that's usually the pipeline right to professional and how we can actually address some of these structural issues in a meaningful way. So things mm -hmm are happening. And I was so encouraged to see that they were happening and that all of these organizations were taking this really seriously and actually had things that they were planning to do and that are starting to happen now in uh, 2023. So I'm looking forward to following up on all of them and kind of see where we're at on that very important issue. We just did our last episode on, uh, we started with kind of a, a, a lampooning or a review of Avatar 2, but then segued into this real explosion of Indigenous arts in film hmm. and TV. And uh, it is very positive. There's lots of growth. There's also lots of funding that's become available um, that's uh, it's inspiring people to create and to, um, I think it's becoming marketable as well. I mean, Marvel Comics this past two years ago and this year um, has dedicated themselves to uh, asking Indigenous creators of historically very racist superheroes and stereotypes uh, mm -hmm. to remake those images in Indigenous eyes. 
uh, and it's because it's and because it's marketable. They make money doing this, and they yeah. also uh, are able to produce mass issues that are sold sold out almost immediately. Katrina, if you uh, if you had to think of a story, heavy or not so heavy, that you are going to be watching in the next year, what's what's the story you're going to watch? Well, over the past uh, since I've been at the Free Press, I've been reporting on teacher misconduct and how it's handled in Manitoba. And basically, what we've found is that it's very much handled quietly behind the scenes, and that there's sort of no system that actually even tracks cases of misconduct um, at any like at any real level um, and no big picture of what happens or what consequences are little transparency that sort of thing um, in and in other provinces uh, things are far more transparent for instance in Ontario you can there's a teacher registry you can look up anyone who's a teacher and who has a teacher's license and I believe even who previously had a teacher's license see their status see if they're facing any um, serious accusations that are going to be going to hearings and whatnot. And so I reported on that a fair bit in 2022. And uh, just a few weeks ago, the province, the education minister here committed to creating a teacher registry in the province and also creating an independent body that handles cases of teacher misconduct. So that would actually be an unprecedented situation in Canada. Um, there are no other provinces that have an independent body that deals with these cases. So that was committed to in the throne speech. And what I'm looking to in 2023 is seeing if that actually happens um, and seeing, you know, these things often take a long time to uh, come to fruition. So keeping a close eye on that one. And again, you're, you're such a naturally positive guy. I mean, you're just always like just exuding you know, when you're not trying to like change the name of the podcast and marginalize me and whatever. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, but you must have something hopeful that you're looking towards. Well, I'm just, uh, as a former teacher, I was thinking about what constitutes misconduct, but uh, is it, is it drinks on a Friday? Is that, is that what it is? Or is it, are we talking about, I mean, we've all, <laughs> we've had all those different stories that have been quite egregious in the city. Um, but I also wonder with, whether that would be, you know, following standards tests and so on and so forth. Um, okay, my thing I'm looking forward to in 2023, uh, it does start with a bit of a downer, of course, we've got these current issue involved in the Indigenous community uh, surrounding the search for uh, Morgan Harris and all of the other uh, situations involving the alleged serial killer in the city at the landfill sites. Um, I'm in contact with the Harris family fairly regularly, and so uh, so I'm very much on the pulse of that issue. Uh, and there's a um, uh, there a current there was a dispute that was settled, but it is still simmering in the Indigenous community of who speaks for who. Uh, what will be the role of the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs and new Grand Chief Kathy Merrick when it comes to the uncovering or the analysis of the landfill sites, uh, two of them that we've covered rather extensively. Um, and, and then, of course, you know, giving some justice to these families, giving voice to these families, uh, because they have felt as though the, uh, the major political organizations, particularly the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs, have not been speaking very well for them, not including their perspective. And so I'm watching that issue very closely at the moment. Uh, but at the same time, there has been this uh, alliance building, this uh, growth of Indigenous women and girls in the province that I think often isn't recognized. And uh, in the very important attention that we play to murder, missing Indigenous women and girls and two-spirit people, uh, there is a explosion of creativity, success, and national prominence for Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people in this province. If I were to list them all, I could be here for another hour, uh, but I'll just give you a few examples. So Patricia Ningwants just won the Order of Canada for her work in saving Anishinaabe language. Uh, Josh Whitehead from Pegwas First Nation is winning massive accolades for his most recent book, but then also his previous book, Johnny Appleseed. Uh, the national prominence of writers like uh, Katerina Vermette or uh, the, of course, all the incredible work that's being done in the music industry. Uh, we talked a lot about the film industry. Um, you know, 
over and over again, my friend Rhonda Head, who is a, a soprano Cree singer, is currently in Los Angeles uh, singing, doing work. Uh, Kevin Chief and the Norman Chief Memorial Dancers just did a tour of California. I mean, the explosion of Indigenous creativity and particularly uh, women, girls and two-spirit people in this province is something that I'm watching all the time. But I think we're seeing a growth that's been unprecedented. And, I, and that is something that I th hope everybody is noticing because it is a real made in Manitoba import to the rest of the world. And it's something that shows Manitoba off in dynamic ways that I think no other ways we do it better. So I'm going to uh, finish off by offering th uh, three predictions. Now, I, I should say, yeah, I know. I just see, like, Jen is already going, oh, you sucker. <laughs> um, and uh, which is true because, like, as, as a columnist, you never, you should never do predictions, right? Like, because it's, once you write it, it's in print, it's online, it's in the archive, it's there forever. And, and boy, oh boy, like people will remember every prediction you ever made. So to keep my, uh, you know, my basically rule of columnist thumb in line, I'm not going to predict the outcome of the provincial election, other to say that I think it's going to be very, the result will be very close. Uh, but I will make three other uh, predictions. Number one, I think that before the end of the year, Winnipeg Police Service will have a new chief. Um, the reason I say this is because um, the current chief, Danny Smythe, um, and not getting into any specific criticism or uh, misstep, but he is not popular outside the city, uh, uh, the ranks of the, uh, of the uh, police service. He's not popular inside the ranks of the police service. And I just don't know how such an important job can be held by somebody who really has no constituency of support. So it, this isn't a specific criticism of him, but I just I just don't see where his support is going to come from. Related to that is I believe that before the end of the year and before the provincial election, uh, the current provincial government will announce that the Prairie Green landfill north of Winnipeg that we believe the the remains of two murdered uh, Indigenous women uh, are encased will be uh, permanently taken out of uh, service and uh, that something else will happen to that site. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm hearing a variety of different things, but I think that at this point, um, I actually believe that that Premier Stephenson has, like she's shown good instincts on this file to date. And I think that uh, there's no way uh, that we can allow that to go back into service as a landfill. And, and I believe that she will lead on doing the right thing there. And the third thing is uh, that I believe that the Winnipeg Jets will make a deep, deep run into the playoffs this year. Uh, I can't say that they're going to win the Stanley Cup yet, because that would mean that the Toronto Maple Leafs aren't going to win the Stanley Cup. And although I'm pretty much like I'm going to move to that position soon, I'm not willing to say it yet. So Jets run deep into the, and for goodness sakes, people who like having an NHL hockey team in your city, as you do, like if you like live music, if you like live theater, if you like museums and galleries, please go and support these things so that they stay in the city. So there, that's, that, that would be my. That was mostly, that was mostly yeah. good. We're, we're going to edit out all the stuff about the Maple Leafs, but it was pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I want to, you know, just say what a huge appreciation that we, uh, can give to the both of you, Jen and Katrina, for coming and joining with us on the trail of the Negon and Lone Ranger podcast. How did you feel? Did you feel like you uh, did you feel like you were riding down? The sunset was coming. the The sunset of 2022, the sunrise of 2023. Uh, we stopped. We made a fire. We <laughs> roasted some hot dogs. Probably vegetarian. I mean, I'm sitting. I'm sitting in the photo room in the office right now with a, my winter coat on because it's freezing in here. So this is <laughs> that's I'm where I'm at right now. <laughs> I'm imagining like repeated cartoon like Looney Tunes backgrounds of just like the cactus, another cactus. Hey, rock, the, the the Negon Lone Ranger podcast on skidoos riding down the trail. Um, <laughs> we want to say huge thanks to, of course, as usual, our uh, wonderful producer, Adam at uh, CJNU and all the great people over there. Um, you know, I hope everybody supports local radio in 2023. Uh, it really is a, a venue that all that I think is, a, you know, unsung heroes of this country doing amazing stuff, doing media that supports all of us. 
And of course, our colleagues at the Winnipeg Free Press, editor Paul Samin, and all of you for coming and supporting us and helping us out. We want to give a big shout out to uh, someone who helps us a lot at the Free Press, Wendy Sawatsky, who, uh, who works very hard to get this podcast available for all of you listeners. And uh, let's have a great 2023 there, Dan. I couldn't say it better. So, uh, you know, you're really the designated metaphor abuser in this uh in this partnership, but I, I will say hi yo as we go forward. How's that? <laughs> that, that did y'all did you all hear his uh Johnny Cash song a couple weeks no. ago? I hope please go back and listen to it if you have yet not yet. Go back in the Negon and Lone Ranger archives and hear the wonderful uh, theme song that we had a few episodes ago. Uh, but Jen and Katrina, thanks so much for coming. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. It was fun. Be well, everybody. Be well, thanks. Thanks.